Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for New Books in Japanese Studies, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Anne Giblin-Gadakt about her book, Tohoku Unbounded, Regional Identity and the Mobile Subject in Pre-War Japan, which is out from Brill in 2022. Tohoku Unbounded centers cross-border mobility in its narrative of the history of Japan's Tohoku region in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The book is a challenge to the stereotypical image of the Northeast as static and isolated, focusing on Pacific migration, to Asia, to North America, and to the Philippines, could act pieces together an account of how mobility and movement were instrumental in creating modern Tohoku's regional identities, and how this process was in turn integral to Japan's modern self-image. In this sense, Tohoku Unbounded contributes to a growing uh, body of literature exploring factors such as mobility and region in the construction of the modern world of nation-states. Okay, Dr. Gadak, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, your book, Tohoku Unbounded, Regional Identity and the Mobile Subject in Pre-War Japan. Um, and of course, I want to ask you first uh, how it is that you became interested uh, in this project. Uh, some of our listeners may know it's a we have a shared interest in the Tohoku region. So I'm very curious to know, uh, both on a personal as well as a professional level, uh, how you became interested uh, in Tohoku. Thank you so much, Nathan. And please do call me Anne, uh, especially as a fellow Tohoku lover. Um, I actually got started being interested in the Tohoku region in general because of my placement as a JET. Um, I was working as an ALT in Iwanumashi, which is just south of Sendai, about 20 minutes south by train. And uh, when I first got my placement, a bunch of my Japanese friends, they all started commiserating with me. Um, They felt so sorry for me because I was going to be all the way up in Tohoku where nothing ever happens. Um, and I'm from central Wisconsin where nothing ever happens. So I was like, okay, I can handle this. I, you know, it won't be what I was expecting, but it'll be great. And then I arrived and it was not central Wisconsin. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, plenty of rice fields, uh, lots of farmers. Um, but it was very much modern Japan as I had always imagined it. Um, Sendai at the time had over 2 million people. Um, it was one of the largest cities in the nation. And I took pictures and sent them home. And everyone's like, oh, Tokyo is beautiful. I'm like, that's, that's, that's and I. Um, and because I wanted to be able to interact better with the students, I wanted to keep working on my Japanese. I picked up a copy of Harry Potter. And I figured it would be a nice conversation piece that we could make. Um, and I could work on some of my more colloquial Japanese because university Japanese does not cut it when you're talking to seventh graders. Um and I was doing fine reading it. And then I hit Hagrid. And Hagrid's dialogue was very hard to understand. And um, I asked some of my colleagues, like, what's going on? Because I knew, you know, Hagrid speaks with an accent in the American version and in the British version. And they said, oh, he's speaking Zizuban. 
he's speaking Tokuman. I was like, wait, what? Um, and it made me start to really think about, you know, why did my friends commiserate with me about winding up in this wonderful place? Why was it that Hagrid is being translated into the local dialect? Um, I did some more research on the local dialect of Zizuban, um, as well as the dialect around where I was in Miyagi. And I started realizing how it's used in translation. Um, the Fool in Shakespeare is translated into Tolkien. Um, when they translated Uncle Tom's Cabin from English into Japanese, they used the slave dialect as Tolkien. And I went, wait, what is going on? So that kind of planted this idea in my head of what is going on? Why is it this place and all my experiences here are so different from the way it was represented um, in the modern um, in the contemporary time period. When I went to graduate school, um, I was walking to the parking garage with my one of my advisors, Sarah Thal, and she's like, all right, so it's time. You, you need to figure out your dissertation project, Anne. And I'm like, okay. And I've been playing around with some ideas about Hokkaido um, and education um, and settler colonialism. And she's like, well, just the one piece of advice I have for you is this. Whatever you do, make sure you can live with it for 10 to 20 years because this is what you're going to do for graduate school and then this is what all your job talks are going to be on and then this is what your book is going to be on and this is what your book talks are going to be on she's like you're committing to a topic for 20 so years and if you don't love it you're going to regret it and so i knew at that point it had to be token um, i had fallen in love with the region when i was there i wanted to do more research i wanted to get at some of those questions that have been plaguing me. Um, and so that's how I decided on Tohoku. Yeah, so that that's funny. Not only do we, of course, share the research interest, but uh, a lot of that personal history rings true. Um, I, I had a similar experience of uh, being told back in 96 when I first went to uh, do a homestay in, in, uh, in Tohoku. Uh, as a student, that I was going to the Tibet of Japan. Um, and I, I thought, well, Scotland, but Tibet's pretty good too. Was Scotland was, of course, the other one, yes. Uh, and then, and I had, of course, a similar experience when I took a job in Iowa in the States. Everybody commiserated and told me what, you know, it's like, you know, I think you might be missing something here. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so it, it is sort of interesting to see that uh, that, that sort of shared uh, personal history that we have. Um, and, and it, it's reflected in, and I know we've, we've sort of talked about this off air, uh, this idea of the, uh, that the, the work that, that we've uh, each done about Tolkien is, is complementary in an interesting way. And so you're doing, you're developing a lot of themes that uh, I was completely blind to when I was doing my own research. Um, and so I want to start by, uh, jumping into, I think the biggest theme here, which is, uh, for you, mobility. Um, and that was something that was completely off of my radar. Uh, so thank you for uh, opening my eyes to that. Um, and your your book is really a you know a major case study of mobility um, for the people of the Tohoku region in the mostly the, the really the pre-war period is what you're focusing on. Uh, but you have sort of positioned this as a, as part of a bigger agenda to think about rural mobility uh, and thinking about that in the context of modernization and mobility itself as a modernizing force uh, in Japan and the broader Pacific world, as you put it. Um, so you're centering your analysis on this uh, paradox, right, which we've already started to identify, which is the paradox of the image of Tohoku as this, you know, provincial backwater isolated even within Japan, the Tibet of Japan, the, you know, uh, everybody needs 
to commiserate when you move there kind of place. And the reality, which of course we both experienced uh, more recently, but you also point out in the pre-war that it was a that's not really an apt description of much of what was going on. Um, so to to yeah, so what is it that drew you to that part of the sort of Tohoku problematic, right? The idea of mobility, um, even within that larger interest about Tohoku. Thank you. Um, yeah, again, it's it's somewhat anecdotal, but uh, I was teaching a night class uh, for um, senior citizens when I was there as a chat um, in English. And I was I had all these students who were born, some actually in Meiji um, and in Taisho. And they started talking to me about stories from when they were children because they knew I was interested in history. And I was just blown away by how much internationalism was in there. Um, the books that they read, the conversations they had, the correspondence that they had, the ways in which people were going and coming back, um, and their awareness of the greater world um, began to really strike me then. And so for me, I wanted to think about this idea of mobility. Um, this was right at the very, very cusp of the start of the mobility turn when people were, you know, I was there in 2003. Um, people had started to look a bit more at diaspora studies, um, largely outside of Japan studies, but also you have um, like Adachi, like you have some of the pieces that are coming out about diaspora studies as well with Japan. And I thought about the ways in which I saw internationalism while I was there. Um, to me, mobility was a hypermodern conception, right? Whenever we think about modernity, we think about mobility. We think about rural mobility, yes, but it's always push factors that push people out or the void that is left behind from brain drain. And I started to pair that with the contradiction of the modernity that I felt when I was within the Toku region. And I began to think, is this really a one-way road, right? Is it just everyone leaves and they leave vacuums behind, or is it something so much more? Um, and you know, working on a lot of the theory that I developed both in undergraduate and graduate about alternative modernities and multiple and uh, plural modernity, I began to wonder what is rural modernity? Is it really this gaping hole as people leave, or is it more? Um, is the act of mobility something that can give us an insight not into the missing pieces, but in fact, make the missing pieces whole? Um, and so when I started looking at the correspondence and return migration, um, the very act of these villages coming together and discussing world events, but also thinking about sending sometimes whole chunks of their villages into other places, I said, this is a profoundly hyper-local event. Um, and it's an event that when I was doing more research on migration, you know, everyone thinks about Hiroshima, they think about, they think about all of these different places in the South. But every time I read books on migration, usually like the third or fourth largest population group that was moving were from Tohoku, right? They were from Fukushima, they were from Miyagi, they were from Yamagata. And I was like, what? Why? I mean, I understand why people focus on the big three and four. I completely understand and thank them so much for doing the research on it. But what happens to the rest, right? Why are we happy to be done at that moment? And so I figured that, you know, you have these international ties everywhere. We have the back and forth. I want to get to the root of why the Tohoku region is seen as rural. And I think part of that is tied to these 
assumptions that are made about mobility being subtractive. And so I wanted to create a voice where mobility was additive um, within a rural setting. Yeah, I think that's it's an interesting pairing with uh, uh, another uh, book that I've uh, had the privilege to talk about here on the podcast, which is John Trapagan's book uh, about uh, rural cosmopolitanism in contemporary, you know, rural Japan, but uh, and specifically again focusing on the Tohoku region. But that idea that um, the these rural areas are in fact defined very much by their connections to the world. Um, and that, as you say, that's additive in an interesting sense. Um, and so I want to jump in uh, to the book and to, to start thinking about um, how you sort of unfold that uh, historically, starting with uh, chapter one, which is called Looking North, Assessing the Boundaries of the Meiji State. And so here you're looking uh, at the colonization of Hokkaido uh, as a formational moment, not for Hokkaido, but for sort of Tohoku's regional identity. Obviously, it's important for Hokkaido as well. Um, but in the context of what we're doing here, you're arguing that um, settlement in Hokkaido, and I'm quoting you here, facilitated a form of Japanese modern regionalism, quite independent from the top-down directives of Tokyo, as a Tohoku identity emerged and flourished. So yeah, I'd like to sort of unpack this a little bit. Um, what what about that? Those sort of particular circumstances of modern expansion into Hokkaido uh, encouraged and facilitated the emergence of a specifically Tohoku identity. I think at this time period, the ways in which the redefinition of the state and these earliest years of Meiji really territorially marked the Tohoku region, both definitionally as well as I think. Uh, within the nation state's perception of the role of people from that area. Um, Tohoku becomes what I call a borderland in transition. You know, so much of Japanese history from earliest times really talks about a marching frontier. And as the frontier continues to push up through Honshu Island, it's always moving and changing and being renegotiated in these liminal spaces that become Mutsu and Dela um, in the O region. And so when you are a samurai on the periphery of Japan, then you're closing, you know, you're helping to protect the country, you're helping to settle these wild spaces. You know, when you read like Basho, things like that, it's always about this juxtaposition between the civilization of Japan pushing out into these wild spaces. But what happens when you're not on the border anymore? What happens when these wild spaces that used to be definitional to an identity of being part of a frontier suddenly are internal and therefore underdeveloped? And so I want to look, I wanted to look at the ways in which that shapes the identity. Um, and a lot of this chapter is about the transition to being Shizoku, right? To being former samurai. How does that shape some of the most dominant families um, in the samurai? world. Um, how does it change when not only do, as you know, Michael Work calls them Meiji Restoration losers, um, how do you go from losing the war to then being in a space that's seen as hopelessly underdeveloped? Um, on top of that, you have the government legislating, um, I shouldn't say out of spite, but kind of out of spite, um, against these clans that did not agree with the Meiji Restoration. Um, and uh, the result of that was that for a number of people that are part of the Shizoka class, but also others, um, they decide that perhaps they don't want to stay in that space. 
um, when given another opportunity to settle Hokkaido, that seems like it's in line with a lot of the world in which they had previously placed their identity in. Um, Hokkaido was a really interesting space because it had a lot of not just tax breaks, but it also reinforced a lot of the pre-Meiji hierarchical stereotypes. When you have the Tondenhei settlers, they all are retaining both soldier and settler. Um, and you have you know people like Tamura Kenin, who was in Edo um, during the Restoration, writing to Date Kaneshide saying, listen, we need to go settle Hokkaido. It'll give us a new mission. It will change us from being, you know, loyalists to the shogun, to loyalists, to the new state. This is some way we can redefine who we are. And then when you look at the ways in which they set up their new colonies up there, you know, they're given the worst parts of Hokkaido. Um, they're given territories that, according to a lot of the land surveyors, are like fairly farmable. Um, having never been to Hokkaido and not being a farmer, I don't know if that's true, but that's what the documents at least say. Um, and so they have a soft landing of sorts, right? They're able to use patronage systems. They're able to bring people from their regions up with them. And then even the governmental projects are, you know, as you have the stripping of a lot of samurai rights in other areas of the country, you still have this elite status, um, and special rights that come along with being things like a Tondenhei. Um, they can keep their military positions. Um, and so I kind of explore the ways in which that happens, but it's still very much tied into clan, right? And so because I want to explore this transition to the Tohoku identity, I needed to understand how the clan lines begin to break down and instead it becomes divided into people from the northern regions versus the other samurai tondenhei that are coming from other places, uh, which actually throughout the whole book is a through line, um, also comes down a lot to dialect. Um, people can't understand each other from the south and the north. Um, and so when the Kaidakshi and others begin to put together the tondenhei settlements, they realize they can't mix these different former samurai together. Um, they have to separate them out because it just doesn't work that well otherwise. And so you begin to see people relocating either directly from one community to another, moving en masse, which we see with some of the early patronage works like the Date, Shi, those sort of areas, or you see them putting them together because they begin to realize that while we're from different areas in Tohoku, we can at least understand each other. Um, and so we see this discovery that regional settlement, um, that settlement using region is very, very productive and useful. Um, the samurai, former samurai, are able to close that northern gate. Um, they're able to have a lot more freedom um, outside of the thumb of major control. Um, and the most successful of these settlements are very much tied to region, um, putting people together. And then you have, following on that, the Dantai being organized, and you have village and regional relocation patterns happening as well. So for me, I think that looking at the way that Tohoku identity is created is a lot of once people leave home, they realize who they are, right? It's hard to know. And this was an experience for me as an American traveling abroad. Like it's hard to realize that I'm American until you're somewhere where no one else is American. And then you're like, Oh, I guess that's a thing. Um, and so you begin to see them grouping together um, in these ways, and most importantly, especially because it comes back in in the fifth chapter, the government realizing that this is the way to do it. Um, and the settlement of Hokkaido becomes a template that we see in Manchuria as well. 
Yeah, and so that's a, a setup that gets us uh, into the 20th century, uh, which is really the sort of heart of what you're doing. Um, and we're going to start talking about that uh, in relation to chapter two, exporting regionalism uh, to Hoku Japanese immigrant culture. So, uh, like I said, this takes us into the 20th century. Uh, Tohoku residents are beginning to now emigrate, not uh, to Hokkaido, but from Japan um, in larger numbers. Um, and when they reach destinations such as Hawaii, uh, they're again sort of finding that their identities have been circumscribed in advance by the definitions of Japaneseness established by earlier waves of migration um, from other regions around Japan. Um, and so again, you have this sort of question of, uh, as you just put it, you know, you, you don't really realize who you are until you leave home kind of problem. Um, and so, so when uh, these Tohoku uh, migrants end up in places such as Hawaii, there's a kind of flattening of Japanese identity. Um, and, and what did this do to the regional and professional, excuse me, prefectural identifications uh, that had been built up uh, amongst the people of Tohoku as they moved into these new spaces? You know, it's it's this is kind of the heart of where um, a lot of my dissertation work uh, was, as I, I called my dissertation from the inside out, uh, because I was fascinated with the historiography of mobility. And when we looked, especially when I was looking back in the two, the aughts um, at migration literature about Japan, a lot of it was coming from the historiography of receiving nations. Um, so a lot of it was coming from the amazing work done by Japanese Americanists, like Japanese American historians, people like Azuma and, you know, Daniels and many others. And so when I looked at that, the work was amazing. But the one thing I wanted in there, which, of course, was not part of their project, is I wanted regionalism. Um, but so much of that literature focuses, of course, on the interaction between the Americans and the Japanese or the Canadians and the Japanese or the Filipinos and the Japanese. And so when you look at the Japanese immigrant community from that lens, it gets very much flattened, right? The Japanese to the receiving nation are all of one body. Um, but because of the work I'd already been looking at, I knew that that wasn't necessarily the case from a Japanese perspective, right? Just like Americans, you know, if you're from the South or the Midwest or from the West Coast, like there are different identities. Um, and so from the outside, the Japanese were just Japanese, but internally, I wanted to see how that broke down. What does that mean in these foreign spaces? And how can that help me construct conceptions of regionalism? Um, and so I looked at Salikoko Mufwene. I probably butchered his name. Uh, he is a scholar at the University of Chicago. And he has a, a lot of fascinating work written on the founder's principle. And the founder's principle is the idea that the first populations um, that go to any given place set a template. So what is Japanese-ness to the Americans in Hawaii? It's tied to the Southwest because those are the people who came. So the observation of the Japanese, it wasn't Tokyo. It was the Southwest, which within Japan proper was not seen necessarily as the height of civilization um, either. So, you know props also to the Southwesterners for setting a founder's principle, good for them. Um, but for the people from the Northeast, from Tohoku, many of them, especially because they were coming slightly later, many of them had much higher education um, based on memoirs, which is not necessarily representative, but I have a lot of evidence from it. A lot of them were actually Christian, which if you know Tohoku is not actually a huge shock. 
um, but for many people, something Japan might be surprised. Um, and then they also tended to be more, you know, they were older. A lot of them were coming in their 20s, well, in their 30s and their 40s. Um, and so they're a very different population. Um, many of them also do have background in language that's coming out of Tokyo, but they can't speak to people from the Southwest. And so they're greeted by the populations there as basically people who can't speak Japanese correctly. Um, they don't really understand them. They don't fit in with their world. And so you see the creation, um, not just with Tohoku, but really in general, in these migration populations, you have the creation of Kenjinkai, which are prefectural associations. Um, for Tohoku, you also have um, regional associations for all of Tohoku. So you have some Tohoku Jinkai also that appear um, because, you know, it becomes hyper local when it comes to those founder principles of founders because they're coming from like a town in Hiroshima and they'll have their own prefecture of their own town association. But the Tohoku people, while they were still a large population, they would group into larger groups. Some of them were prefectural and then some of them were even regional. And um, for them, what they wanted to do is they wanted to find like people, um, you know, for example, when they go to Brazil, um, there's translators of Brazil that speak Japanese and there are translators into Brazil that speak Okinawan because that's a huge population. But the Tohoku people can't really talk to the Japanese translators that well either. Um, and so you see this division within their own community. Um, little mini, mini micro Japan is happening, but it's condensed into a port city and it's surrounded everywhere by people who see them as the same as these people who they don't associate themselves with. So you see the creation of these Kenjin Kai that really become home away from home. But as we see in a lot of literature about Chinatowns um, in particular, the image of Japan that gets created and recreated and constructed in the Kenjin Kai is not necessarily reality. And so these people from Iwate and Yamagata and Miyagi are all coming together and they're constructing what they imagine to be Tohoku, what they have in common. And that's where we see this formation of an unbounded region. Right. It's not in Japan. This is happening. It's being forced in this basically cauldron and this, you know, pressure cooker that is internationally. And then when people are imagining what is Tohoku-ness, um, how are we all similar? How are we different? And then, you know, many Japanese migrants are not settlers. They're sojourners. So they come home and their idea of the importance traditions are also brought home with them. Their idea of what it is to be from here from my native place is brought home. And so that's what that chapter really is doing is it's telegraphing the ways in which you have the Tohoku Japanese, right? It's a new hyphenated identity. Um, they're not just Japanese immigrants, they're immigrants with an E. And so they're bringing home what Tohokuness is with them. Yeah, and uh, so then in the next chapter, um, which is normalizing the exceptional history, myth, and memory in immigrant ethnicity, um, you're exploring what you call uh, a migrant mythos over time and the way that was sort of created and evolved. Um, and in addition, sort of the, the different ways that stories of quote unquote pioneering migrants were interpreted and reinterpreted over time. Um, you do this through a, a collection of, of case studies. Uh, and the one I kind of want to focus on here, which I think is, is familiar to, to some people sort of outside of our, our little uh, regional clique here as well. Um, and that is the, uh, the story of uh, Oke 
uh, and the refugees of the sort of civil war that brings in the Meiji period, uh, who established a colony in California. Um, this is the Wakamatsu colony. Uh, and this has been you know, talked about, interpreted, reinterpreted in different times and places. Uh, but can you tell this, us, us how, well, first of all, a little bit about um, the, the colony itself um, and the people who founded it, uh, but also how this fits into uh, the overall story that you're telling about uh, specifically Tohoku uh, rural mobility uh, and migration. Yeah, this, this is a topic that I came across pretty early in my research and um, I was thrilled actually that there's been a lot of work done. Um, I have to start off before I say anything about um, Eichiro Azuma's work on OK, which um, he has a wonderful article about OK interpretations in the 30s, and then it also comes up in um, two of his books. Um, but OK is a really fascinating example of this because what I found when I was looking through the prefectural records in Japan proper about immigration during these time periods is there's lots of discussion of kusawake, right, of these men who parted the grass. Um, and they become heroes back home, even in the Taisho and Showa period. Um, the stories of local boy makes good. Okay is different. Um, okay is a story of a woman who was working as a nursemaid um, uh, she was actually part of uh, the resistance movements in Aizuakamatsu when the castle was being attacked. And she winds up leaving with, uh, oh, at one point they're Dutch and at one point they're Prussian. Um, but the Schnell brothers um, are both uh, actually gun suppliers um, during the Boshin Civil War. And um, one of them winds up marrying into the family. And so when they leave, they need to bring a nursemaid with them, and they bring okay. Um, they flee, and Brother Schnell sets up a new uh, tea and silk colony uh, in uh, California, and there they begin to... Um, it's it's a failed colony, though. It only lasts about two or three years. Um, when you read the newspaper articles in the American press, they talk about these uh, princes that are refugees, that are fleeing the disorder in their home country and are coming to make a new life in America. And then over time, it begins to transition to how um, these Europeans are exploiting the Japanese who come with them um, and how there are horrible living conditions. And that's why the colony fails. Um, it kind of disappears from the radar for a while, um, with the exception of, um, okay, she winds up dying. Um, very soon after, right around when the colony was failing and she gets buried on this lonely hill. Um, in the 1930s, a Japanese newspaper man uh, shows up trying to research um, some of these early mobile, mobile patterns. And he comes across okay. And everyone assumes she had been a prostitute because within early Japanese American migration, women were very rarely migrants. Um, but he kind of rescues the story. He finds some people who used to know her and um, winds up writing this tale. And the reason I love OK is because of the way her, her narrative changes. I actually published an article in the Journal of Social History that chronicles this. It's not as much in the book. A lot of it's in that, that article. Um, but I called that article Just Enough Mystery. And it's because the Centennial Committee of the Aizawakamatsu Colony in California actually has, you know, it's so rare when we're historians and we're reading these documents to get like the perfect moment of quote. And they said she was had just enough mystery 
uh, to be able to basically fill her up with narrative, right? We don't know that much about her. Um, with relation to the book, one of the interesting things about OK is that she was a, a refugee, right? She was someone who was fleeing a homeland that no longer existed. She could never go home. Not only was it literally burned to the ground, but the Japan that she knew was Edo Japan. She didn't know Meiji Japan, but she becomes imagined and reimagined and reimagined every 30 or 40 years to become this new vessel for whatever the speaker wants it to be. Um, and at first you have Japanese nationalists who want to talk about how okay is, and this is what Azuma does amazingly in his article and in his books, this vessel for imperial expansionism. Like, look, even though she was, uh, she was on the wrong side of the war, she wanted to expand Japan. She wanted to bring that to new shores. How wonderful. Um, after the war, the very same author writes another article. And in that, okay, suddenly is no longer this epitome of Japanese expansionism. She becomes the heart of Japanese-American friendship. Um, he calls that article, which he writes in English, um, the Japanese Mayflower. And there they tie, okay, to the idea of these people who are fleeing problems in their homeland, much like the American colonists have been fleeing problems in their homeland. And there they find, and yes, it's, it's a tortured past, possibly like Roanoke, but it's a tortured past, but it is indeed a valiant past that shows the ways in which the Americans welcomed them in after war and strife. A good narrative for the 1950s and 60s. Um, but the reason I started researching it was actually from documents I found from the 1980s. And in the 1980s, there was a group from Aizu Wakamatsu who actually did a pilgrimage to Oke's grave. And they're standing there in California in front of Oke's grave, and they're singing songs about how much she loved Aizu Wakamatsu and her nostalgia for home and how hard it must have been for her to be so far away, but how she had placed roots in this American country, never forgetting her past. And these Japanese from Aizu Wakamatsu are standing next to Japanese Americans who've also mythologized Japan okay in their own way, right? Because they have this Mayflower idea, um, the idea of the tragic beginnings um, that becomes the root for their entire migrant mythos themselves. And so she becomes this interesting cauldron. She's made and remade over and over again until the point where her origin story doesn't even matter so much as the way she's used. But the idea that you have these different groups all standing next to each other on that one hill talking about now Japanese internationalism and how, okay, what's, you know, okay, it's from Aizu Wakamatsu, which is from Tohoku, and it's really rural and backwater, but actually we were the first, right? We planted roots in America before anyone else in Japan had. Um, but the Japanese Americans who are looking at that saying, but this is our mother, and they talk about how she becomes the mother of the entire Japanese American movement. And you have Ronald Reagan, who actually makes a declaration, including OK, about the important history and legacy of Japanese America. It's, it shows the ways in which Tohoku showed up in weird places and is deeply, deeply entrenched in the notions of what it is to be Japanese abroad and also what it is to be Japanese in Japan. Yeah, and this is um, a great segue into your chapter three, which uh, is really talking about um, the ways that uh, Japan is 
uh, seen in in vis-a-vis -vis this idea of modernity and modernization. Um, so this is writing domestic regionalism, seeking authentic, uh, in big scare quotes, tohoku in interwar Japan. Um, before we jump into this, I did want to say that you know the the, the chapter on okay, um, this sort of interest in the uh, partially empty vessel that can be filled up with narrative. Uh, this is, I think, you know, one of the places where uh, our research sort of crosses over uh, most most nicely. Um, but again, you know, I was not thinking of this in any way in terms of the mobility and the sort of image uh, of uh, Tohoku outside uh, of Japan. So for me, you know, as somebody who went into this actually knowing the OK story before I read your book, uh, there was that moment of, oh, so those things fit together in a way that I never saw. Um, and, and that was, that was really interesting for me to see, okay, in that light of the kind of discourses I was interested in about Tohoku domestically, which is a little bit more what you're talking about in chapter four, right? The domestic regionalism part of this. So by the 1920s, rural Japan, Tohoku in particular, uh, is seen by many people in Japan, um, sort of the, the thinking and chattering classes, especially as the kind of a site of authentically Japanese national identity, uncorrupted by modernity. There's a little bit of a sort of um, you know, invented tradition to this, and there's a little bit of xenophobia to this, and there's, you know, kind of trying to find some sort of uh, definition of Japanese-ness in a world where the definitions of Japanese-ness are a little bit up for grabs um, in the, 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 the rapid changes of, of modernity and modernization. Um, and the flip side of this, of course, is that, uh, as you show, Tohoku is simultaneously, quote, uh, is portrayed, quote, as an implacable holdout against modernity, uh, and yet also as a case study of the worst tendencies of modernity. Um, and so this is, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of a triple paradox in a way. Um, you know, we, we're, we're running into a lot of paradoxes with Tohoku, which is, of course, why I think both of us spent those 20 years with it. Um, so this was not the only paradox in the image of Tohoku even at the, at the time. Um, as you write, quote, popular culture representations created a Janus-faced identity for the region, ignoring its empirically outward-looking and mobile history in favor of typecasting Tohoku as inward-looking and static. So this is kind of the point that I think where you're, you're, you're uh, looking at how this um, image of Tohoku as somehow isolated, as somehow um, the, the the sort of backward image of Tohoku uh, is is really being um, you know, brought uh, into being here. Um, and, and what was it about the twenties uh, that that makes this happen? What are the factors in Japanese society at the time that creates this particular uh, vision of Tohoku? I really fell in love with the idea of the folklore movement in particular, right? When Minzokugaku becomes huge in Japan, really is in the 10s and 20s, right? With uh, Yanagiri Kunio writing his um, work, Tono Monogakari, right? Which the tales of Tono and Tono, of course, being in Tohoku region. And as I began to read through those stories, um, I began to become very aware of just the the very anthropological project right of having people from tokyo coming up into the Tokyo region and trying to chronicle and as marilyn ivy says you know write down the discourses of the vanishing right there's this vanishing true authentic japan that's disappearing and we need to write it down as quickly as we can and we're going to use hyper modern anthropological discourses in order to do so um, and when you read the introduction to Tomomogatari, like it's just so obvious that a level of disdain in which you see from 
this scholar from uh, Tokyo is writing about the simple provincial people up here, right? And look how adorable it is that they believe these things are true. And so you have this recasting in the 10s and 20s, you know, when Japan is no longer seeking to be recognized as modern, but it has been acknowledged as modern on an international stage, you begin to have, you know, you know, Harry, 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 Harry Tunian calls it overcome by, by modernity, right? Like, who are we? Before we lose who we are, we need to find it and discover it and write it down and keep it um, in a little bottle. And that bottle becomes Tohoku, as, as well as other places. I mean, believe me, it's it's not it's not just Tohoku, um, but I'm obsessed with Tohoku, so that's where I went. Um, and so the way I wanted to kind of pick this apart was to talk about, you know, the idea of regionalism, the ways in which regionalism is being created both within intellectual circles in Tokyo, but also within intellectual circles coming and intellectuals often outside, they're from Tohoku, but they're not living there anymore. And so you begin to see in the work of some of this literary um, production, the this tension. And yes, I'm, I'm obsessed with paradoxes. I think Tohoku is a wonderful place. I think Japan is a wonderful place for paradox. I think history is a wonderful place for paradoxes. Um, but I decided to look at it, particularly this idea that you pointed out of like the worst tendencies of modernity, as well as a holdout against it. I paired a bunch of different pieces of literature. Um, I looked at like Kanikosen, which is probably one of the most famous pieces of proletarian literature um, that came out in the 20s, late 20s. And then I also paired it with Sobol, um, which is this really fascinating piece. It won the first, uh, one of the first literary prizes, um, which name I always say wrong. And I'm not going to say it out loud because it'll be offensive to people when I get it wrong. Um, um, but it's by Ishikawa Tatsuzo. And what Sobol does is it looks at migration to Brazil. And it takes a group of people from Tohoku region, and they're fleeing the Tohoku region because it is a place that is no longer a place they can live in anymore. It's not modern. Um, they're impoverished. They're losing their land. Um, of course, the weather is, is terrible, which is what everyone always says about Tohoku. Um, and so it looks at them in a migration center um, in Kobe before they even leave. And it throughout the whole thing the idea that keeps coming up over and over again the very first question they're asked by immigration ex, um by immigration people is now, who are you and where are you from and where are you from becomes definitional and you see in those migration centers them pairing together and grouping together by region um and so they're leaving because the new capitalism that has basically benighted the Tohoku region right they they can't stay home they have to go and then Connie Polson, which actually predates it, I should have started with them, that historian. Um, but Connie Kosen is another work, which is a piece of proletarian literature that is really focused on life on this cannery boat. Um, and it's all of these modern day for the time period, dekasegi, like um, working away from home people. And it's about how horrible life is on the, on the cannery boat. Uh, when you read the original Japanese, there's a lot of dialect in there as well. Um, the location where people are from is very important. But it's showing the ills of what capitalism has wrought. Like the capitalist modernity of the West has created untenable life for people in the Tohoku region, one that they're either seeking to overcome or they're fleeing. And I thought that that was an interesting way of looking at it. Like, why is it that we look at Tohoku as unmodern? 
as traditional, where nothing ever happens and it's insulated. And yet we see them represented within some of extremely famous fiction that was read all throughout Japan as being in these very modern positions. And I started thinking about foils and the ways in which, you know, you can craft your narrative, especially for these Tohoku natives, by taking someone who's supposed to be insulated from it all and placing them in the worst situations possible of capitalism is a statement. But it's a it's also a construct. And it's a construct that reifies itself over time. So when we look at these classic works of literature, I mean, I started reading Connie Colson in 2008 because I was just going through an airport and leaving Japan. And it was like on the bestsellers list. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> but it's because Japan was going down an economic downturn, right? And so I pulled it off and I'm like, I know this is about Tohoku. It's actually about a fish cannery boat off the coast of Hokkaido. And I'm like, what is going on? And I sat down and read it and went, okay, this, this is what's happening here, right? And so we also see the ways in which the Tohoku imagery transcends the time it was written in. It's being used artistically by people who are from the region, but it's portraying this visualization. And I'm like, here's maybe one of the pieces of the puzzle, maybe why I got condolences for being up there. Right. It's a benighted region and it's a benighted region that is still very much remade through classic works of literature. Yeah, I think the the, the literature of Tohoku is quite interesting. One of the um, works that uh, a lot of people know about, but we haven't talked about and a lot of people know about but haven't read. It's one of those classics uh, is Kirikiri Jin, uh, which sort of takes to, it, it. It's an attempt to um, invert uh, many of the uh, things we've been talking about. Uh, these sort of images of Tohoku as backward. And I think it, it's it's interesting, you know, in that, uh, I hate the expression, but it's kind of that exception that proves the rule problem, which is that it, it doesn't work as a, a great work of literature, which it is, unless you already have all of these stereotypes built up and you have this body of literature, um, both in, in the sense of sort of uh, academic and nonfiction literature, and also in the sense of, of literature um, as fiction uh, and as art. Um, and you know what? this is what's sort of interesting, again, as you say, is that these images are recycled over and over again. Once these tropes are created in the, um, the years that you're talking about, uh, they, they continue to have uh, currency, and in the same way that you, know, you point out uh, both in the book um, and in the article you, you referenced earlier with, okay, yes, they continue to have currency, but the meanings keep shifting, right? So they, they're just, they're, they're part of a sort of landscape of tropes and ideas that keep coming back as, uh, you know, cheap shortcuts um, to, you know, to, to explain various aspects of uh, you know, what it is to be Japanese or what it is to be modern or what it is to not be modern. And in this sense, it's actually like, I keep, I've been thinking recently that this is kind of, you know, in some ways, um, it's very much before the so-called Nihon Jindon or discourses of Japanese-ness booms of the 60s and 70s, really the 70s. But there's there's definitely this, you know, sort of long lineage um, of thinking about, uh, you know, Tohoku as a way to uh, either exemplify uh, what it is to be Japanese, the sort of, you know, uh, refuge from modernity. Um, it is all the things that haven't been corrupted. Um, or as a way to say, uh, you know, this is what we have left behind and become modern and we're so much better off now that we're not like those Tohoku people and all the rest of us have been saved and all is left is for us to fix Tohoku and then everything will be fine, right? Uh, so, so this is, a you know, I think to me, it's an interesting um, discourse that of course is in no way limited to Japan. Right. I mean, this is the the problem with 
uh, with Tohoku is is not a Japan problem, right? Um, however, <laughs> the, the problem that you take up in the last chapter of your book kind of is. Uh, so this is uh, leading Tohoku Asia uh, regional identity within Imperial Japan. Um, so we take here, it's kind of an abrupt phase from what we've been talking about. It's the 1930s. Uh, those of us who are familiar with history you know, as long as you read up to about the 1930s, everything's fine. You stop there. It's all good. Um, but uh, as Tohoku-born uh, intellectuals begin to see Tohoku as a potential leader in the growing empire, um, we we see a real change in the, the way that they're thinking about what it is to be Tohoku. Um, and this is the, um, you know, can, can we be exemplars of what it means to be modern, ultra-modern, really, in the sense of imperial? So what are the elements of history and, and regional identity that they're uh, drawing on uh, to make this argument? And how do they then disseminate this message? Um, and I guess, you know, at some level, there's this question of, okay, that's nice, but did it have any effect? So I wonder if we could talk about that as well, uh, effects on the perceptions of Tohoku, uh, both locally, regionally, um, in Japan writ large, and perhaps beyond, if there's something to talk about there as well. And yeah, a big shout out for Kitty Kirijin, which is always worth reading. Um, I, I talk about it briefly in my book, but um yeah, it's it's a fun one. Well, and, if you, um, and, and for those of you who thought that reading Hagrid's uh, dialogue was hard in Harry the Harry the Japanese version of Harry Potter, good luck to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it's a push, but it's a worthwhile push. Um, and it's much like when I read anything in dialect in English, read it out loud. If you read it out loud, it'll make a lot more sense. <laughs> you can get through it a lot faster. Um, okay, so yeah, the fifth chapter was. It was a chapter that I really debated. Do I want to go there? Because it is a pretty big about phase. And I remember having conversations with my advisors um, because I wanted to put Manchuria in the dissertation. And they're like, you know, it's kind of a big topic. And one of my advisors is Louise Young. So like, yeah, I knew it was a big topic. Um, but I decided to hold off on it until the book. And I really decided that if I wanted to do the full arc, I had to. Um, I wanted to make sure that I covered, if I was going to do Hokkaido, I felt like I had to do Manchuria as well as domestic um, ultranationalism and the ways in which that helped shape the identity. Um, because Toho identity, of course, in the post-war, um, I would recommend you read Nathan's book. Uh, it will tell you a lot about it. I wasn't touching that one with a 10-foot pole. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Um, but I didn't think that we could leave silent 30s and 40s. It just, you can't, right? Um, I think it'd be academic malpractice for me in that sense. So what we see in the 30s and 40s is developing out of really the 20s. Um, it's developing out of this push for regionalism, right? Domestic acceptance and embrasure of a regional identity is wonderful. But what happens when regionalism is superseded by nationalism? What happens when, if you are more feel more attachment to your region than your nation, you're no longer patriotic. And so what we see in the 30s and 40s is the intellectuals scrambling a little bit, but not having to look too far to be able to take their works from the 20s, the 10s and 20s, and reimagine them in this idea of nation. So how can we be both attached to our regional identity and proud of it and not be going against the nation, particularly because Tohoku it has a little bit of a, you know, problematic relationship, uh, historically speaking, um, with uh, the central government, particularly after the Meiji Restoration uh, Revolution, I should say. I'm a Tohoku specialist. It's a revolution. Um, so 
what we see is some scholars like Atoro Rezo and others who are trying to bind nationalism and internationalism to native place regionalism. And the way that they do this actually, because there's been such tumultuous back and forth about the place of Tohoku within the nation, which doesn't fit their narrative, right? Tohoku is benighted, it's backward, it's underdeveloped. They don't want the national narrative. But international, there they have stuff to work with. Even though directives out of Tokyo had long been ignoring any form of internationalism, as we see throughout my whole book, internationalism is very much present throughout the Tohoku region. And so they go back early. They go back to during the Edo period. They go back to the early Date um, clan when they sent an ambassador to Rome. Because again, I told you there's some Christianity background in the Tohoku region that we don't like to talk about. Um, um, and they look at the ways in which you have these kusawake, right? These trailblazers, right? Tohoku actually has been leading in international migration. Tohoku is how we settle Hokkaido. If Tohoku is how we settle Hokkaido, then we need to use Tohoku. These people know they're from rugged backgrounds, right? They understand settling new frontiers. They've been doing it. They've been doing it in um, the Philippines. They've been doing it in um, the wilds of uh, Canada. They've been doing it in the wilds of America, right? In fact, frontier to frontier migration is pretty much the heart of a lot of Tohoku migration in general. Um, whereas you see people from the Southwest are often going into urban spaces. The people from Tohoku go into other agricultural spaces. They go into Vancouver um, and around Vancouver, not just into Vancouver. Um, and so and when they go, they go down to Davao, right? And Davao in the Philippines, um, as we see from um, Jojo Abinale's work, um, it was actually considered a Japanese port of call in the 1920s and 30s, right? Now, Japanese maps, they include that as a Japanese port of call, even though the Americans would not appreciate that. Um, I don't think the Filipinos would have either. Um, but they've been doing that. And, you know, having traveled to Davao even in, you know, the modern period, it's it's certainly, the city itself is plenty urban, but there's a lot of rural space around it as well, as there is throughout Mindanao. So we have the recasting of, the entire history of mobility that I've told throughout the rest of the book comes to a head in the 30s. And you have very, very intellectual, um, intelligent intellectuals who take that history and they say, look at us. We are the leaders of Northeast Asia. We are the ones who you need to be looking to. You've ignored us all throughout modernization. That's fine. You guys were taking care of you. But if you want us to take care of you now, you need to look at us. We can take care of everybody. And so you have essay contests. Um, the Sendai branch of the Tokyo Nishinishi Shimbun was one of my favorite um, sources in the entire book. And it's a series of essays that come out in 1942. And they ask people from Tohoku to write, how can we be the leaders of Northeast Asia? Yeah, Northeast Asia. And they write, and they write about how international Tohoku is. They talk about the long history of Tohoku. They talk about how it's always been a leader, how it's always been on these frontiers, always pushing out, always expanding, always spreading the cultural sphere of Japan. And therefore, we not only are we nationally proud of who we are, we are the embodiment of Japanese expansion. And you need to look to us. Great in the 1930s and 40s, a little bit icky. Um, when we move past there. Um, and I think that it 
the interesting thing is it's a moment in Tohoku. It's an, a moment when I think Tohoku scholars in Tohoku, local regionalist historians embrace the whole of a mobile past for Tohoku. I don't think it goes much farther. It's not like people, you know, in Tokyo are like, oh, yeah, let's do that. Um, people in Tokyo are going, hey, let's use them to colonize Manchuria. I mean, that's a great idea. They don't, they, they need the help, right? Um, we can get these benighted people to move. Um, we had great luck in Hokkaido. We'll be able to move them. You have the start of the village division programs um, that Louise Young wrote about um, extensively, actually, in her first book, uh, where you, and others, of course, uh, where you have the village division programs where you take big villages in the Tohoku region and you basically take about a third of the population and you just plant them in Manchuria. Um, and so they're planting this the flag for, for Japan. So they're used that way by actors in Tokyo and planners. Um, they also play a disproportionately large role in early 30s Japanese polit uh, army politics, um, which I will tell you, I was not expecting because I am not a military historian and you're reading it, you're like, oh, the Manchurian incident, huh, okay. Um, thank you, Sendai, uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, but you see like all of this idea that gets folded in. They use that history also a lot in the 40s when they talk about why the Japanese um, from the Toga region should be leading. Um, but I don't think that it has a huge impact. I don't think that this essay contest in Sendai was read broadly by anyone, except for people in Sendai and me. Um, and you, if you want to go and find it, it's fun. Um, and so I see it as a moment where the intellectuals and the idea of Tohoku as idea comes to fruition in the pre-war period, right? It's the transition from the Boshin War um, and the, you know, the losers of the restoration into the Tohoku region as a codified identity among people in that region. Um, I don't think it resonates past that, but it does come forth perhaps a little bit and not entirely just from that, but I think I see lingerings of it when we see like the triple disaster and the idea of persistence and the hardy nature. Um, and as Nathan has written a wonderful article about at the time, um, we see a lot of those echoed. I think they're not only from the 30s imagination, but I think the 30s imagination helped it. Yeah, I, and, and thank you for referencing that that article. It's the thing that I was sort of thinking about when I was listening to you, of course, um, which is this this, you know, to repeat myself a little bit here, this idea that. Um, you set up all of these, uh, you set up a sort of lexicon, right, of possible ways to to think about and talk about Tolkien and what it means to Japanese-ness. Um, and I had the good fortune to uh, commit the academic malpractice of not having to do all this sort of legwork that you've done with the rural mobility um, side of it, uh, which um, is is in particularly the the the, the uh, last chapter here. Um, with thinking about the uh, uh, regional identity um, in the 1930s, I relied very heavily on uh, Kawanishi, Kawanishi Hidemichi's work, um, and uh, you've uh, expanded my horizons there, so I appreciate that very much. Um, so this is a good place, I think, to end uh, with you know, sort of mutual appreciation society. Uh, but before we before we do, because uh, obviously we could nerd out about this forever. Um, but uh, before we uh, end the call here, um, now that the, the book is out, um, what is uh, on your plate these days? Uh, what are you up to and what are your future plans? Um, I've got one ongoing project and then I have the nascent idea of a book. Um, 
my ongoing project, I actually got some funding um, to do uh, interdisciplinary work with a colleague of mine at Seton Hall, uh, Cherubin Kazan. Uh, she's an anthropologist of the Philippines. And Cherry and I were talking about the idea and cultures of disaster, um, speaking of the triple disaster and the Great Tohoku Earthquake. Um, and as someone who's both lived in the Philippines, um, as well as someone who lived, you know, just outside of Sendai um, before the earthquake, um, we started talking about, you know, Greg Bankoff's ideas of cultures of disaster. And we started talking about named disasters, the disasters that kind of leave this mark and imprint in society um, that people talk about. And it becomes a moment in time, right? The before and the after, but also where were you when um, moments. And we decided that um, we were both really interested in learning some new skills. Uh, so we uh, decided to do a project that looked at digital humanities tools and uh, taking as a starting off point, um, Harvard's JDA, uh, the Japanese Disaster Archive. Um, we started playing around with it and seeing what was present and what was there. And we wanted to think about using data mining um, and creating open access materials. And so, we decided that we wanted to learn R and we were going to search through using Twitter and Facebook um, posts of underrepresented voices with regards to the Great Tohoku earthquake in 2011 and also Hurricane Yolanda, um, known internationally as Hurricane Haiyan um, in 2012 in the Philippines. And we kind of want to create something, we wanted to create something kind of like the JDA for the Philippines. Um, but when we started digging in and we uh, had um, Nate Kapoor as a consultant for us, um, who is a friend, and he also was the director of the JDA um, as a postdoc right after, I think it was in 2012. Um, we had him come in and we were talking about what the JDA does. And we realized that it is a lot of crowdsourcing from individuals who sent in materials. It wasn't a lot of data mining. Um, and so we... Uh, have been trying to learn how to pull these stuff. Uh, things have gotten messy now that Twitter is a lot harder to deal with right now. Uh, they've changed a lot of the rules for uh, academic research. Um, we talked to uh, another consultant who uh, was working at the time of GMA, uh, which was one of the major news outlets in the Philippines. Um, and we've been trying to figure out how we can start creating these data sets. Um, right now, it's mainly just informational and learning. But, you know, in the future, I would love to create modules along the lines of the JDA where we could have open access data sets that students would be able to work with faculty um, digging through. And we want to do it with both Yolanda as well as um, the 311 disasters, and then maybe expand out over time, but that's a huge project. Um, and then the other project is the monograph. Um, I have a tentative title, uh, From Everywhere and Nowhere, Unpacking Japanese Expatriate Identities in the Era of Globalism. And this comes from my experience living as an expat for 10 years in seven different countries. Um, I realized when I came back to America that I had more in common when it came to my identity with people who had lived in multiple countries, it didn't matter where they lived, but if they had lived in multiple serial, serial movers, um, that we had a different perspective um, than many of our countrymen. Um, and so I want to expand that and explore it. Um, I'm thinking about doing it thematically. I think one chapter is probably going to be on natural disasters um, experienced from abroad. Uh, Cause I remember 311 
I had just returned home and just sitting and watching it unfold, um, especially because I was from Iwanuma, uh, was pretty hard. Um, and then I want to pair that maybe with the Tokyo Fire. Um, I think we'll have a chapter on dark tourism um, about the experience of going to these sites abroad, particularly when your nation might have culpability. Um, I think we're probably going to have a chapter also um, maybe about contested domestic political debates um, and also the cultural shock of homecoming. So I kind of want to look at that. Um, you know, Ichiro Azuma's new In Search of Our Frontier, which is, I can't say enough about, it's such a spectacular book, um, made me think about expatriates um, even more because uh, he's looking at multiple mobilities, right? You start in one place and then you move to another place. Um, but I want to see the impact of what happens to national identity when you're not in your national space. Well, uh, that will, I'm sure, be keeping you busy for another 20 years. Uh, but hopefully, we'll, uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we will get you back on the podcast before then uh, with with a, a book of some sort. Um, and as a, a, a serial expat myself, uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to uh, that as well as uh, to, to seeing how the, the dating mina, data mining goes. Uh, better, better you than me having to deal with Twitter's API right now. But um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm excited to see how that all works out. Um, and thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. Uh, and uh, congratulations on recently getting tenure, I hear. Um, thank you, thank so you. yes, enjoy the rest of your summer. Take care. Bye.